Zechariah 13, 1 to 6, primarily in verses 2 to 6, it is a denunciation of false prophets. But in verse 1, verse 1 actually has a bit of a connection to the previous chapter, chapter 12, 10 to 14 on redemption. So switching from redemption, 12, 10 to 13, 1, to denunciation or condemnation, 13, 2 to 6. Verse 1. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And it will come about that if anyone still prophesies, Then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet, I am a tiller of the ground, for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Amen. Zechariah 13.1 and also in 13.2, both of them begin with, In that day. In that day. In that day, in the Old Testament, is anticipating the days of Christ, the days of Messiah. That is, events between his first and second comings. From the first coming, between the first and second comings, and then at the second coming. These words, in that day, or in those days, after those days, at that time, in the last times, These phrases refer to the days of Christ between his first and second comings. And that's what he's describing here in 13 verse 1. In that day. Now, to illustrate with a couple of verses in the New Testament, the first one is from Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Why do we say that that's what it means? Hebrews Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, has in these last days spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son. That ministry lasted three and a half years during the first coming of Christ. God spoke through his son. And those days when Christ was on the earth are called these last days. Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 3. We can read 3 and 4. 2 Peter 3 3. Know this first of all that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, 
Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They know that the apostles are preaching the second coming of Christ, but they ridicule or mock the second coming of Christ because it has not come yet, which means that this is happening between the first and second comings of Christ, and it will culminate in the return of Christ, the second coming. And this phrase we find in the last days. This is why the last days or in that day, expressions like that refer to the events between the first and the second comings. Everything that encapsulates that period of time between the first and second comings. If that we keep in mind, then when it says a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. If a fountain is going to be opened, what is that fountain or who is that fountain? Why does he call it a fountain? A fountain is usually a what? A fountain of water. And this we find in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. And verse 13, 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. The broken cisterns that can hold no water, those cisterns are cisterns of idols. Idols are not fountains of living water or fresh water. But God is. So who is the fountain? The fountain is God himself, the Lord himself. uh, Jeremiah 17, 12, and 13. Jeremiah 17, 12, and 13. We may also read verse 14, 12 to 14. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel... All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are my praise. God is the fountain of living water. The people of the earth forsake him. But he is the only source of healing, water, refreshing water, healing water, to save the, to save the soul, according to verse 14. God himself is the fountain. John chapter 4. John 4, verse 14. We read 13 and 14. 4, 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Christ is the source of the water that springs up to eternal life. John 6.35 John 6, 35. 
Jesus said to me, I am the living bread. Uh, I'm sorry, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He is the bread, and he is that which quenches our thirst and makes us never thirsty again. 651 of John. John 651. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If any man, if anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 7, 737 to 39. 737. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Herein we find that the fountain has to be the Lord. It has to be God himself. Nobody else, nothing else. But it is a fountain that will be opened. So when the fountain is opened, then there is abundance. There is free-flowing water. There is plenty to drink, to quench the thirst. This shows how abundantly, superabundantly, God provides for our salvation. Also, it's for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. These have been already identified in 12, 10 to 14. And though the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem are first the Jews, but it's also the Greek, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because those who believe are included in the people of God. They become the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. Galatians 6.16. So this, though it includes the Jews, it is certainly extending to the Gentiles because anyone who believes in Christ, Jew or Gentile, belongs to God, belongs to God and is named after Israel's name or named after Abraham's name, such as Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 26 to 29. For you are all sons of God, Galatians 3, 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If we are in Christ, if we belong to Christ, then we are the true offspring of Abraham. Romans 2.28 Romans 2.28-29 to of Romans. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew 
who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. The applicability of this fountain, the abundant fountain of eternal life, is for all who believe in Christ. It says here also that the fountain is for sin and for impurity. Sin and the effects of sin which make us impure or unclean, filthy. It is a fountain that will take care or remove our sin and remove our impurities. Sin causes impurities. And in this way, he is alluding to the fact that in the Old Testament, there were many examples, examples of God cleansing the people during their rituals as a pledge or as a token, as a symbol or sign of their need to believe in Christ. And if they believed in Christ when they performed the rituals, then they were forgiven. If they did not believe in Christ and they just performed the rituals, then they were not forgiven. In other words, what was the purpose of the blood rituals? What was the purpose of the water rituals established by Moses, instituted by Moses, which God told Moses to institute? What was the purpose of all of them? The purpose of all of them was to get rid of sin, but only to the extent that they understood it in relation to Christ. To remove their sin or wash them from their sin as it related to Christ. Numbers chapter 19. Numbers chapter 19. Let's read 19.14 to 19. Numbers 19.14 to 19. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. And every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who in the open field touches one who has been slain with the sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. And a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there. And on the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the one dying naturally or the grave. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh he shall purify him from uncleanness. And he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be clean by evening. This is one example of numerous examples in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy of this kind of sacrifice that ought to be offered 
And this kind of uncleanness that results when one touches something or someone unclean. When one is clean and touches something unclean, he becomes unclean before the Lord. And that uncleanness was representative of sin and the need to avoid sin. Stay away from unclean people because unclean people are symbols of sin. Therefore, avoid them. Have nothing to do with them. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. As it says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. 6, 14 to 18. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We're called on to separate, make a distinction, have no fellowship with darkness, with unbelievers. Not at all. And he uses the analogy of Numbers 19 and Zechariah 13, where he says here, do not touch what is unclean. That which is unclean or impure is a symbol of sin which makes us unclean or impure. So have nothing to do with it and let the rituals during the period of the Old Covenant, the rituals would be a constant reminder to the people that they should avoid sin. And to avoid sin, we must avoid sinful people, those who are unrepentant in their sins. Avoid them, have nothing to do with them. Don't mingle with them, because if you mingle with them, you'll become unclean like them. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James 4, 4. Now, how is it that the blood of Christ, how is it that Christ removes all this? How is it that Christ takes care of our sins so that we are now cleansed? Remember, we're talking about impurity or uncleanness. Hebrews 9 will explain. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those 
who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All of our key words are here. That Christ is the one who represents or is the fulfillment of all that was represented in the Old Testament. It's not the blood of goats and calves that saves. It is his blood that saves and provides eternal redemption. He says here, on the surface level, for the cleansing of the flesh, the goats and the bulls and the ashes of the heifer were required. And actually, Numbers 19 is the chapter on the ashes of a heifer, the sprinkling of the heifer and the ashes of a heifer. All that ritual is in Numbers 19, which we read. Numbers 19, 14, or from the beginning of the chapter, throughout the chapter. But here in Hebrews 9, 14, he says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The external ritual cleansing represented the fact that only Christ, through his sacrifice, could give us the cleansing of our conscience that we need. The cleansing of our conscience because our dead works hold us guilty before God. The guilty conscience needs to be exonerated, needs to be justified. And how can that be changed? The guilty conscience changed to a good conscience. How does that change? It changes by the fountain of the blood of Christ. He is the source. Chapter 10 also, Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. For the law since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. Therefore, if it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, then who takes away our sins? It's Christ, the Lamb of God. And He's the one, because of faith in Him, and believing that he died on the cross for our sins, that's when our guilty consciences, our evil consciences, become good. That's how we receive a good conscience, that which is cleansed after we recognize that our sin made it impure, our sin made it unclean. But now it's clean. Clean how? By the fountain of the blood of Christ. That's an abundant fountain, which can save an innumerable number of people, all the ones he chooses to save. 
as innumerable as the sand of the sea and the stars of heaven, a great multitude which no one could count. Revelation 7, 9, the great multitude. That's the fountain that saves. He's, here, Zechariah is prophesying of Christ. And if we say, well, how do we know he's talking about Christ? Well, he talked about Christ in our previous study, chapter 12, verses 10 to 14. And without dispute, 12.10 is Christ being put to death. He is being pierced, whom they have pierced. He is being put to death. That also, that word is also in 13.3. When his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies which means they're going to put him to death. Pierce him through means to put to death. Only Christ. Let's not go elsewhere, only to him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. Now we've come to verse 2. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. In that day, the Lord of armies, the Lord of armies, who has powerful armies, heavenly and earthly armies, angelic and human armies, whatever he wants to use, even natural armies. He has all of them at his disposal to accomplish his will. That's the reminder always, the Lord of hosts. So everyone should fear the powerful, mighty army of God, or armies of God. Everyone should fear. That's why he introduces himself that way, then says that I will cut off God is going to kill. God is going to execute. God is going to remove these idols and false prophets. He's going to cut off and remove the idols and the false prophets. So people will not refer to them. They won't remember them. They won't call upon them. They won't mention them. They won't pray to them. Because God will take care of this business. He will cut off and he will remove. He will do so. Cut off idols, remove the prophets. And in verse 2, prophets is shorthand for false prophets. He doesn't always tell you initially what he's talking about, but because he's going to remove them, and it's a context of punishment, obviously by the prophets he means the false prophets. And that becomes clear from verses 3 to 6 that he means the false prophets. He doesn't mean all prophets, and he doesn't mean true prophets. He's not punishing true prophets. He's pun punishing the false prophets. And this actually, Zechariah has done before in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Not in reference to prophets, but in reference to swearing. 5 verse 3, he says that he's going to purge 
Everyone who swears will be purged away. Everyone who swears. But is all swearing wrong? No. But in this context of punishment, he's talking about false swearing. And then in verse 4, the next verse, he clearly says, The one who swears falsely by my name. So it just takes a bit of understanding that this is a practice of the Scripture to mention something very briefly, but then to clarify what is mentioned briefly in the following verses. He means the false prophets. Now, the fact that God removes idols, that He is in the business of punishing and getting rid of idols. We find this in Exodus 12, verse 12. Exodus 12, 12. Exodus 12, 12 has its parallel in Numbers, if you would like two references. Numbers 33, verse 4. Exodus 12, 12 and Numbers 33, 4 say the same about this incident. 12, 12 of Exodus. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. God punished all the idols and all the demons behind the idols and all the priests and worshipers who followed them. That's what he did in destroying the Egyptians. And further, Exodus 23, Exodus 23, 13. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. Do not mention, do not talk about them favorably. He means favorably. Don't talk about them favorably and do not pray to them. Do not believe in them. Have nothing to do with them. He's not saying you cannot speak of them disfavorably. He's not meaning that. You cannot, he's not saying you can't speak of them in order to teach people to avoid them. He doesn't mean it that way. He means don't mention them or remember them or speak favorably of them or pray to them. Don't invoke their names because you think you will be blessed if you do so. That's the same sense in which Zechariah says, they're not going to be around anymore. I'm going to get rid of them all. And part of the way he gets rid of them is telling us not to think of them favorably and get rid of them ourselves. The book of Hosea, Hosea 2.17, Hosea 2.17, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. I will, re- I will remove these names and they won't be mentioned or remembered or invoked in prayer anymore. That will not happen because God is going to cut them off. God is always against idolatry. Always. But idolatry has more than one face. 
Idolatry has various expressions. We find in Matthew 6, 24, Matthew 6, 24, Jesus saying this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. God and mammon, or material possessions, cannot be served side by side. It's one or the other. It's not the two together. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. 3, 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Which amounts to idolatry. And in that verse, he didn't mention idolatry proper at all, the worship of images at all. But he's saying here, which amounts to idolatry. And 1 John 5, 21, the last verse of the book of John says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. 1 John 5, 21. Guard yourselves from idols, but he never spoke of image worship or statue worship throughout the whole letter. Therefore, anything that deviates from the truth is idolatry. Anything that deviates from a true theology and a true morality is idolatry. Anything that breaks the Ten Commandments is idolatry. Whether it breaks the first part of the Ten Commandments, the first tablet, verse, uh, Commandments 1 to 4, or the second half, Commandments 6 to 10. I'm sorry, 5 to 10. 5 to 10, 1 to 4, and 5 to 10. Any breach of the Ten Commandments equals idolatry. And God's in the business, has the agenda, will accomplish the removal of all idols. That's what he desires, because he alone is worthy of worship. He also says and expands in verse 2, I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. God is also going to remove the prophets from the land. The prophets. And by prophets, he means false prophets. A stern and strong warning against false prophets. There are a couple of places in the prophets that have expansive denunciations of them. One place is found in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, the whole chapter, Jeremiah 23, 1 to 40. But let's read a shorter section, which is found in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 13, 1 to 14, 11. Ezekiel 13, 1 to 14, 11. And this becomes a very clear 
denunciation, condemnation of false prophets. 13, verse 1 of Ezekiel. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy, and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. They see falsehood and lying divination, who are saying, the Lord declares, when the Lord has not sent them. Yet they hope for the fulfillment of their word. Did you not see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you said, the Lord declares? But it is not I who have spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie, therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. So my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations. They will have no place in the council of my people nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that I am the Lord God. It is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace, when there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. So tell those who plaster it over with whitewash, that it will fall. A flooding rain will come, and you, O hailstones, will fall, and a violent wind will break out. Behold, when the wall has fallen, will you not be asked, Where is the plaster with which you plaster it? Therefore thus says the Lord God, I will make a violent wind break out in my wrath. There will also be in my anger a flooding rain, and hailstones to consume it in wrath. So I shall tear down the wall which you plastered over with whitewash and bring it down to the ground, so that its foundation is laid bare. And when it falls, you will be consumed in its midst, and you will know that I am the Lord. Thus I shall spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it over with whitewash. And I shall say to you, The wall is gone, and its plasterers are gone, along with the prophets of Israel who prophesied to Jerusalem, who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, declares the Lord God. Now you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who are prophesying from their own inspiration. Prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic bands on all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature to hunt down lives. Will you hunt down the lives of my people, but preserve the lives of others for yourselves? And for handfuls of barley and fragments of bread, you have profaned me to my people to put to death some who should not die and to keep others alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic bands, by which you hunt lives there as birds, and I will tear them off 
your arms and I will let them go, even those lives whom you hunt as birds. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people from your hands, and they will no longer be in your hands to be hunted, and you will know that I am the Lord. Because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood, when I did not cause him grief, but have encouraged the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life. Therefore, you women will no longer see false visions or practice divination, and I will deliver my people out of your hand. Thus, you will know that I am the Lord. 14.1, Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an account in the matter, in view of the multitude of his idols, in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the immigrants who stay in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up his idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself. I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. And I shall set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I shall cut him off from among my people. So you will know that I am the Lord." But if the prophet is prevailed upon to speak a word, it is I, the Lord, who have prevailed upon that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. And they will bear the punishment of their iniquity. As the iniquity of the inquirer is, so the iniquity of the prophet will be, in order that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me and no longer defile themselves with all their transgressions. Thus they will be my people, and I shall be their God, declares the Lord God. But God's animosity, God's hatred, God's condemnation of the false prophets is not restricted to the Old Testament. It's also pervasive and threatening in the New Testament. Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 23 to 25. Matthew 24, 23. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. He says false Christs and false prophets will arise. They will arise. It will certainly 
come about. 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 to 4. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. But I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Why do you tolerate these people? Um, verses 13 to 15, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. They will arise among us, just like that. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. 2 Peter 2, 1 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. It will happen. First John 4, verse 1. First John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many false prophets throughout the history of mankind, throughout, until the Lord Jesus returns. That should not surprise us that God is in the business of removing false prophets, destroying false prophets. So we have to be aware that there are many false prophets. We have to practice discernment to discern good and evil, Hebrews 5, 14. We must do so. Not only is he going to remove false prophets from the land, but the unclean spirit, demons. Unclean spirit is another term, one of the many terms to describe demons. They might be called deceitful spirits, deceiving spirit, unclean spirit, evil spirit, demons. These are different names used to describe them. But why are they called unclean? Well, they're called unclean because they also promote sin. Like verse 1, impurity. They promote sin. They are not clean or saved or chosen spirits, they are unsaved, evil, therefore they are unclean because they love sin and they promote sin, they push sin and make everybody and everything unclean. Whatever they touch becomes 
filthy or unclean. This uncleanness is is in the New Testament mentioned in Matthew twelve forty three. Matthew twelve forty three in reference to the spirits or demons. Twelve forty three to forty five. Matthew 12, 43. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. The unclean spirit does evil in the man. Then for a a time, a temporary time, it departs from the man. But then it goes and finds seven other spirits more evil, more wicked than itself. And they make the last condition, the last state of the man worse than it was at the beginning. It was bad enough with one evil or unclean spirit in him. Now he has eight unclean, wicked spirits in him, controlling him and pushing sin on him. And he indulges in sin. Luke 4, Luke 4, 33 says Luke 4:33 and there was a man in the synagogue possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice the spirit of an unclean demon most often in the bible simply saying demon is enough but in this case he makes sure we understand that this is a no good spirit. So he says, unclean demon. The spirit of an unclean demon. They are unclean because they entice and entrap and possess men to do unclean things. Filthy, impure, sinful things. But God is going to remove them. He's going to get rid of them one way in which he does it now. There will be a time when he, on the day of judgment, takes care of all of this. But one way he does it now is found in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verses 18 to 20. 19, 18 to 20. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. In this case, when true conversion took place, those who practiced magic and they had very expensive books of magic to learn and to teach others. They had these very expensive books. They didn't care about selling the books and getting the money. 
they burned all the books. And what they did was righteous because of verse 20. Luke concludes by saying, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. When the word of the Lord prevails over sin, then sinful men, they get rid of their sin. So that evil spirits or demons, unclean spirits, which are rampant and very abundant in sorcery, witchcraft, all of this is very common among them to have demons there. Now they're not there, not at least in these people, because God is in the business of cutting off idols and removing false prophets and unclean spirits from the land. This is the way he's doing it now. One way he's doing it now. But he will continue to do it in various ways until the end. And then finally, completely cut them all off. Can we look at one more place? One more place on how God does it now. Um, Getting rid of evildoers or people controlled by Satan now. Let's go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. In what way did God deliver them over to Satan to teach them not to blaspheme? Well, he quit debating them. He quit arguing with them. He quit appealing to them. He let them go and do whatever they wanted. And if they were in the local church, he sent them out of the local church, like 1 Corinthians 5 says, to deliver to Satan, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, and to deliver to Satan in 1 Corinthians 5 means to remove the wicked man from the church so that within the church, Those who remain are not influenced by the unclean spirit of the unrepentant sinner. Needs to be sent out. That's what he's doing here to Hymenaeus and Alexander. And since we're in 1 Timothy, let's see another example. 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. When the apostle in verses 1 to 16 instructs younger widows not to practice sin but practice righteousness. We pick it up at verses 13 to 15. 1 Timothy 5, 13 to 15. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle. As they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. When younger widows are practicing the sins of verse 
13, and not practicing the righteousness of verse 14, they are following Satan. But if they're practicing the righteousness of verse 14, they're not following Satan anymore. So the unclean spirits of Satan are not in the church because they are rejecting wickedness. These are the different ways that God removes the unclean spirit. Yes, of course, on the day of judgment, they'll all be thrown into a lake of fire. Matthew 25, 41. Satan and his angels will all be thrown into the eternal fire. Next time we'll finish verses 3 to 6. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.